Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have Anila's husband and Nick's dad, Chris Danham, as my guest. Chris, could you give a two-minute intro to your history and how you got to where you are? Well, thanks a lot for having me on the podcast, Marcus. Uh, I'm sorry it took a while to get on, but I'm really thrilled to be here. I grew up through the ranks as a salesperson. I came to the United States, uh, like everybody else, looking for ambition and opportunity. Through a series of encounters, I ended up at a seminar conducted by Zig Ziglar, the legendary motivator. And that encounter led me to uh, wanting to work for him. I was already in outside sales. I jokingly tell people I went to business school to write jingles and become an advertising guy, but someone said I was a people person, which is what I hear every salesperson say. And uh, so I didn't realize at that time what they said was they were desperately looking for people to work on straight commission, and I was gullible enough to do it. So uh, <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah, they said they needed a $60,000 a year person, and I'm still looking for the $60,000 a year. So by a series of encounters, I ended up working with Mr. Ziegler, initially selling retail for him, and then he groomed me to being a facilitator and a trainer and a speaker. I ended up writing curriculum for him. One of the things that I hope will accomplish in this series of dialogue that we're having is the whole habit component that Mr. Ziegler made me embark on to change my mindset from someone who would be a wandering generality and become a meaningful specific. So he taught me a series of skills that allowed me then to take that small opportunity as a retail person in Dallas and now parlay it as a speaker and trainer in 70 countries on six continents. I started with him as a telemarketer, eventually became his vice president of global operations. So He was my influence, but more important than just a mentor-mentee relationship. He taught me some skills that changed my outlook on life and how I would approach this career. And so hopefully through the other questions you ask, we'll be able to give the resume. Otherwise, it gets boring. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. Well, talk to me about those habits, first of all, because certainly from Sandler's perspective, we are absolutely of the same opinion that habits are things that you can control and that you need to evolve and develop continuously. I think training and development is something like washing. If you do it once, you're going to stink in a week. And it has to be something that you have to keep building on. So can you talk to me about some of the habits that Mr. Ziegler taught you? Yeah, so the first habit he told me was never stop prospecting. No matter how successful you get in the business, no matter how much accomplishment you've had, Every day, do something that would provide or yield results in terms of a finished and fertile pipeline five years down the road. So a lot of the habits he gave were actually based on what we call the future skill attitude. He always taught us to have habits for what is about to be, not for what is. So you never woke up to do what was required that day. You did it as an investment for what would yield fruit down the road. It was a different mindset. So the prospecting was basically saying, don't try to prospect so that you'd hit quota this month. Try to prospect so you'd hit quota five years from now. And you'll hit a whole bunch of other stuff along the way. Second habit he taught me was that the first appointment every morning is with yourself. So before you knock on that first door at 9 or make that first call at 9.30 or send the first email at 10, at 7 or 6, you have to have an appointment with yourself. It's a habit that has stood me in good stead because now I can, I can say without any fear of error that probably for the last 27, 28 years, I have woken up within 30 minutes of 5.30 every morning to have my first appointment with myself. 
whether it's a devotional read, whether it's a response to something, whether it's a writing of an idea for an upcoming speech, whatever it is, my first appointment every morning is with myself. There's a fan club I need to be its president, and if there is a company, I need to be its CEO. And before anybody can deal with me, I need to have dealt with myself. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. The whole idea of prospecting being a daily habit is critical. And it's something that certainly what I'm seeing is we're probably at the third generation of managers who don't know how to prospect and don't know how to teach their people to prospect. And this is very concerning because our research last year indicates that only 44% of reps worldwide were hitting quota. And it looks like that's going to drop by another 2 to 4% this year which is a shocking statistic. So what advice would you give to managers in order to become more proficient at coaching and developing their people around prospecting and getting the right mindset as well as the right behaviors? Yeah, prospecting is an art in the sense there's an old adage somewhere that a sales professional never has to make a cold call because all his preparation has made every call warm. You don't panic according to I'm not a big subscriber of what is an A, B, or C client. I basically say everybody is a client. It's just a matter of time. It's a perspective of how you would approach it. One of the habits that I have in prospecting is every day or maybe three times or five times a week, depending on the schedule, three would be a fairly reasonable number. I find myself in the quietness of my own thing going through my phone and just starting with A and then send out three to five text messages to people saying, hey, nothing urgent, just thinking of you, hope all is well. Majority of these are business clients. And an average sales professional would have three to 500 names in his phone. It has to be, in your way, it has to be conversationally fluent to yourself. Mr. Ziegler's core philosophy was you can have everything in life you want if you just help enough other people get what they want. But that has to be a philosophy. It cannot be a tactic. So every day I attempt to do something for someone that they could probably do on their own. Greeting them is the simplest form, but it is one of the forms. Handwritten notes. This is something I learned from one of the Sandler people. I'd gotten away from it, but Tom Neeson in Dallas said that, you know, he maintains what is called a, it's like a thank you tree where he sends out one to the first referral and then he sends out a thank you to the person who referred him to that. And he does it three times. So if someone, like, for example, if you and I are having a conversation and you recommend me to someone and that person engages my service or even has a conversation with me, I send them a thank you card. And then I also send you a thank you card. That handwritten. So I went out and it's been a long time since I've done handwritten, but that's probably paid me more dividends in the last four months because nobody receives handwritten mail anymore. So Some of the prospecting techniques, we need to get off our high horse and think everything is a system, and we need to break it down to the word you use, habits. Brian Tracy called these habits of the heart. What are some things that made ordinary people extraordinary was just doing the same thing a little longer than someone else, that's all. Absolutely. Well, again, taking that a little bit further, one thing that I see often is that people who have a weak or empty or inconsistent pipeline panic. And the net result of that is they then try and buy the business through discounting. And they also end up bunching their deals at the end of the quarter because they don't have the consistency to allow them to say no when they're being put under pressure to discount. And as a result, most of their sales happen in fireside sales rather than at premium which means that they have to work so much harder. 
So in terms of money concept, what did Mr. Ziegler teach you about money concept? Oh, well, you know, in fact, the illustration you gave is a perfect illustration of selling your product for less because you have to hit a number. But if I bought a tie that I would wear around my neck for 10 bucks and I tried to give it to you for 10 bucks and you said, that's ugly, I don't want it. I said, well, how about eight? You said, well, I really don't need it. I said, how about five? Well, I don't care for the design. Well, how about three? Well, I can't pass up a $3 tie, so I'll take one. I'll have made a sale. Will I have made a good one? Obviously not. So what you're doing is the value proposition, Marcus, is uh, how we look at it is whenever I walk into an arena, the price I'm charging for people is way up here in their perception, but the value I'm providing is way down. As a professional, I have to tilt the equation and say, hey, the difference of doing business with me is the value proposition. If I'm selling a pizza and someone wants olives and anchovies, which is a god-awful combination in my own mind, and I'm looking at it as a $10 transaction, I may negate it. But if I say, hey, this guy is going to buy 50 pizzas this year for his family, now suddenly I'm looking at a $500 transaction. And the lifetime value of that customer over 10 years in the neighborhood is $5,000. So if he wants olives and anchovies, you give him olives and anchovies. So the value proposition is always based on the lifetime value of the relationship And a discounting does not help that because if you do it the first time, you're always obligated to give up the farm. So I remember one time a guy came up to me and asked me how much I charge for my little old speeches that he had heard me make. And I gave him a number and he about, you know, fell off the chair. He can't imagine that people would make that kind of money just talking. I could have reacted and said, yes, but that's, you know, because I've invested so much time and done the song and dance routine that we try to justify. When you're justifying, you're never selling. Instead, I looked at him and said, how much do you think a service like this should cost based on your perception of what I'm capable of offering? He came up with a number. Now, I put my entire value proposition in the difference. He already bought 75%. I just have to sell 25. And if it's in the difference, and that makes the value proposition work. But if you do it the reverse, you're always discounting. Again, this is something that we see an awful lot in our world, and I'm sure you do as well, which is that salespeople struggle to differentiate because they're so focused on trying to sell the service or the product instead of focusing on the value. And they spend an awful lot of time justifying and defending rather than being able to plant their feet. And this comes back to mindset. So again, what did you learn early on in your career with Mr. Ziegler that taught you how to plant your feet and do so with confidence, with the ability to walk away from bad business? You may have to walk away sometimes, and that's the key word. You win some, you lose some, and some will be rained out. But a colleague of mine, Brian Flanagan, who's an AS sales trainer, and Brian was with Mr. Ziegler along with me for many, many years, came from an IBM background. When he was my sales manager, he always made every team he did draw two boxes. In one box, he would ask us to write, what do you sell? And in the other box, he would ask us to write, what do they buy? And when we finished the exercise, he would say, your list is the same reason that salespeople have struggled throughout the entire annals of history. Your lists don't match. See, what we sell is not what they are buying. When sometimes someone would say jokingly, they say, what do you sell? He said, I sell myself. And he would jokingly say, well, that's illegal in three southern states. You can't be selling yourself. That's wrong. But changing the value proposition to if the customer, if you're selling speed, ease, and convenience, and they are buying reliability, investment, and price, our lists don't match. So I need to change speed into reliability somehow and make my value proposition fit the words of the client's expectation. 
So these are some of the things we do in the very early stages of our discovery when we ask open-ended questions and we find out what the pain point is. We then take all our benefits and rephrase them in the language of the customer so that we're not doing a verbal vomit on them with our features. At the bottom of that exercise of two boxes, he would have two words on the left and the right. And the first was feature sell, benefits sell. And we have gotten away from benefit-oriented thinking because you know, Marcus, you and I have been doing this a long time. And if we are in commission-oriented sales, uh, odds are you don't have the first commission check you made, and I don't either. But if we did a good job, the client is still experiencing the benefit of that product, which means they do get the better deal. Salespeople should stop thinking about moving product and start believing that they are actually in the solution business and that the client is getting the better deal. So one of the principles and secrets of closing the sale was selling is not what you do to someone, it's what you do for someone. These mindset adjustments will change the habits and will make you approach it differently. You've touched on something else that's very near and dear to my heart, which is the rule that you listen and ask your way into the sale and you talk your way out of it. Why is there not enough emphasis on the listening and asking, particularly listening, to be honest? Because I think Lots of people teach questioning, but they don't really teach listening. Why is it that there isn't more emphasis on that early on in a salesperson's induction? And why is that not emphasized more? Well, I think the cycles have changed in the sense that people are now operating under tighter timelines and the budgets are all tightening up. So people are expected to get resolution for the organization and benefit for the business that they represent in 30 days versus 90 or 120 that may have existed when I was around. But there's also a reason for why we were given longer cycles, because we had longer activity up front. It was not uncommon for us to make 100 calls a day in the early days to generate the eight appointments, to generate the one sale, but your book was always full. So one of the things was we were always taught to make sure that the activity measured accomplishment. With shorter cycles and greater demands, all the people out there are trying to hit the home run. So they're thinking to themselves, hey, I sell a million-dollar product. I remember meeting a guy one time on one of my trips, and he worked for Airbus or something like that, and he was on his way to some one of the Midwestern states here. I said, what do you sell? He said, well, I sell airplanes. I said, wow, that's a high-ticket item. He says, yeah, you only need to do about two a year. So the rest of the time, he's just, because he was selling a million-dollar ticket or a couple of hundred-million-dollar ticket. Many of us in day-to-day living do not have that luxury. Our pipeline has to be full, our activity. And once the dam overflows, it will always overflow in your favor. But you should never stop making sure that your pipeline is full. So that initial 90 days is where the sales managers need to focus the emphasis on building the book of information. Sandler has a pretty good approach in how to mine the data and the CRMs that are required and all of that. We're living in a world where it's so transient and everything is give me my reward yesterday and my due today that nobody wants to work for it. So I think sales managers are also finding themselves under the pressure and they're succumbing to the fact that, yeah, if this guy hits a home run and using an old baseball term in the US, I guess there's a corresponding cricket analogy there somewhere. But in baseball, we say every at bat is not going to be a hit and every hit's not going to be a home run, but every home run has to be an at bat and a hit. You have to show up. The one header in soccer may go in, but how many times do you have to jump up when the corner kick is made? Every time. But it's not going to go in every time. So 
One of the things that really frustrates me is you've touched on it a moment ago, which is that people are looking for instant gratification. And I always look to Napoleon on this one. Napoleon was a great planner. And I believe that wars are won in the planning. They're not actually won on the battlefield. That's where the plan is executed. But the real victory happens in the planning. And because I think so many people are trying to focus on activity rather than meaningful action, they're spending all of their time trying to rush through the process instead of taking a step back, instead of looking at where the opportunities really are, prioritizing their effort. A lot of the work that I do now is in the channel, which is a really tough sell because you have no power. You only have influence and trust as your currency. And if you're not really focused on planning and helping your partners get their needs met, then you're going to fail miserably. And it's a really difficult sell. So what I'm really curious about is why there isn't more emphasis from leadership on planning, on strategy, and teaching salespeople right from the off that it's their job, not only to prospect, but to focus their efforts and their attention on those opportunities that can and will convert rather than those that could but won't. And to emphasize the time spent in planning on research is actually a fantastic investment rather than running around like a hamster on a wheel. Yeah, and I think one of the words you used earlier was confidence. How do you get the confidence to do some of these things? But the parallel word is competence. While confidence allows you to execute, competence allows you to prepare. So the planning is vital, but confidence and competence are both required. As we would say, you know, in order to have the will to go out and demonstrate that you're good at what you do, you have to have the skill that backs it up. So you can't just go out there and... But one of the things that managers are... I think they're facing a double-edged sword here. And the first thing is they are struggling with the dwindling timeline component. A lot of our youngsters and a lot of the people entering the marketplace have never been taught that due diligence of inspection. And uh, let me back up and maybe make an illustration to make this point. When I was coming through the ranks, uh, we had to show our call log to our manager every evening or every couple of days or once a week. And if he didn't see a hundred, close to a hundred calls, he didn't want to hear any other excuse that day about the price of beans in Peru or, uh, you know, Facebook went down or any of the things that give us, that are considered legitimate excuses now. It was no excuse. Going back to my colleague, Brian Flanagan, he taught us this formula. It was called Mr. Dopa. The planning stage, MR stood for make ready, and the MR was 15 minutes before 8 o'clock when the buzzer started. The do was 8 to 5, and the PA, Mr. Dopa, MR was make ready, DO was do, and PA was put away. The put away was 5 to 5.15. So what he said was, I'm paying you for eight hours, and I want eight hours of due time. Your make ready and your put awake cannot be on my time. You cannot come here at eight and start drinking coffee and gossiping and talking to people and asking them about their weekend and starting around 9.15 to think. See, it was just a rule. By the same token, our numbers were displayed every day for people to see. So there was an inherent competition that was healthy. Today, we can't display numbers because we're afraid we'll upset someone. 
So I think there are a bunch of people traveling around there with who are only 40% of them are hitting their quota, thinking to themselves, the manager doesn't know I'm struggling. Of course he knows you're struggling. He can see the numbers. He just doesn't put them up anymore. But we had a big board there and you walk by it and it was a walk of shame. I'm not saying it's the right way or the wrong way, but I'm saying accountability was something that bred responsibility. You may, well, not, you may always be at the bottom of the barrel. That's not a bad deal, but at least you you knew where you were and you tried every day. There's an attempt and effort. You've touched on something there that's very close to my heart as well, which is you talked about competence. And this is where I think managers, again, are falling short because there isn't that genuine accountability. There is a paucity of coaching and there is a general avoidance of role play. In my book, I think that a manager who is failing in any one of those three, let alone all three of them, is guilty of gross misconduct. And they are letting their people down. Why is it that so many managers go into the role of manager without any training around those three vital areas? Well, you know, one of the things you had mentioned on role plays and all of this stuff, which were very important to what we did in the early days, which, again, you know, a lot of the sales methodology has changed because roughly 60 to 70% of the sales now take place online before you actually meet in person. So high tech is playing a bigger part of it than just the pure high touch roles. Having said that, I think the emphasis on trying to die, you know, you'd mentioned it differently. We were taught that prescription without diagnosis is malpractice in any industry. So the prescription for the salespeople has to be one size does not fit all. I resisted this because my vocabulary was different having been raised in the West East and then came to the West. So when you gave me a role play, I said, give me some flexibility. One of the things we were able to introduce was, hey, cultures are different. When you're treating, when you're dealing with cultures that are, you know, larger percentages of both the populace right now here and in England and across the world, our migrant populations are becoming a bigger, bigger part of the buying segment of who you're catering to, either in their business or in their residential. So I introduced some cultural constructs through what we were doing, and that gave us some flexibility, saying we can have role plays, but some cultures, people will not look you in the eye. And when you're asking for eye contact, that may be a push. So we have to figure out what works for each person. Once we started doing that, we were able to create an arsenal that was a little more personal to the individual performing. Now, that may or may not be a luxury, and that's why managers decide that, hey, let me take the lowest common denominator that caters to all 100%, then trying to get 8% effective in this and 9 effective in that. So I think the reason a lot of managers decide to take the path of least resistance is just that. It's the path of least resistance. A true leader, according to John Maxwell, is someone who understands the word influence. And if he has eight people and needs to come up with eight different management styles, he will figure out a way to do it. And those are the effective ones. Those are the ones who have created a sales plan for each person and their employee and making sure that the systems that they have in place have some kind of flexibility to allow each of those people to be effective. So, Well, one of an early influence for me in management was Marcus Buckingham from Gallup. And uh, he talks about playing favorites. So spending a large proportion of your time developing your top performers, because these are people who are generally in charge of your best accounts. And they're the ones who, if they leave, are going to cause you the most amount of pain. 
but they're also the ones who generally have high ambition and drive and want to be helped. But too often what I see is managers spending their time on the weakest players in their team and not really focusing any attention on the top performers. Why is that? I like the fact you brought it up because having been a manager and having been on the other side, deciding who's going to be your favorite is not hard. Their work ethic and their effort will make that decision for you because they're your horses. But you stumbled on something which I have advocated for a long time. I said, sometimes we we don't spend enough time with the top 20%. We spend a lot of time with the bottom 20% and we ignore the middle 60 who are using your email to send out their resume. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. so sometimes we need to slow down. I mean, the top 20 are going to succeed whether you help them or not. You said you use the word, they have ambition. They come to work with their bags packed and if you move the phone, they're just glad it works. They don't care where the phone is. They have a, they have a hunger. There's an old saying, you just look at them and say, if you're not fired with enthusiasm, I'll fire you with enthusiasm. So we just get, you know, it's like, so the, I jokingly tell people, even when I fire people, I do it positively. I don't know what we're going to do without you, but starting tomorrow, we're going to try. <laughs> but the middle 60 is where you need to invest your training dollars on. These are the people who have exhibited some amount of loyalty, some stick to itiveness. They're not hitting the top numbers, but they're not the bottom of the barrel. They're easily helped. So I think if we invest in the middle 60 and use the top 20 to be our inside champions to help the middle 60, you'd have a better shot with 80% of your workforce and get rid of the 20 who are just dead weight anyway. With those 20, I have a simple formula, train, transfer, terminate. I will train them to be successful. I will transfer them to someone or transfer someone to them as the second step. And the third is terminate. <laughs> And give them a really good reference so they go to a competitor. Yeah, you don't want to say somewhere there's a village looking for an idiot and I hope I, you help. So. <laughs> well, with the middle 60, one thing that I find very helpful and I advocate is playbooks because mm -hmm. playbooks allow you to create consistency and it dumbs down to some degree the level of creativity required. But it means that there is consistency. And those who have the ambition to rise to the top will then seek out the additional help. But where I see many organizations fall foul is they don't bother investing in a playbook and they allow people to wing it. There is no system, there's no structure, there's no consistency, there's no accountability. And it baffles me that people keep repeating this mistake and wondering why their sales force aren't producing. And then they have this revolving door in sales, which again, I see is ethically wrong. I think if you're going to take salespeople onto your payroll, it's incumbent on you to help them succeed. And that first 120 days is really where it counts. Because in the first 120 days, that's where the new hire is putting you on probation. Is my uh, new boss an ass? Do I like the people I'm working with? Can I do this job? Was I better off where I was? Can I succeed in this role? And in that 120 days, you need to make sure that they know exactly what's expected of them. They know how they're going to be measured. They know where they're going to find the resources and by when they need to be competent in that particular skill or behavior. But too often, the onboarding process, certainly from my experience, was congratulations, you are one. Here's a phone. Here's a database, off you go, and you're left to sink or swim. And I think that's crazy when you consider the cost of a wrong hire. 
And I think it's morally corrupt because you're taking people on. This is their livelihood. And if you're not setting them up to succeed, and managers in my book only have four real functions, hire the best people, get the best out of them, make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day and protect them from your idiot senior management and their ludicrous decisions. And the problem that I see is that too often, because managers are so hard pressed to bring in the numbers, that they're not focusing on the leading indicators. They're only focused on the lag indicator, which is the revenue or the profit or the number of deals. So what can we do in order to re-educate leadership so that they allow that investment of time in onboarding? They allow that investment in training and coaching. Well, the word you mentioned, a playbook, my dad comes from an old background of an oil and gas, and he was not an engineer, but at one time had 500 engineers working for him. So he was a stickler for writing down systems and processes of what happened from A, what happened at B. So one of the things I've tried my best is to, I'm not an analytical person by nature. When you look at my disk profile, if my bank book doesn't balance, I change banks. I think someone made a mistake. I'm just a happy guy by nature. But I forced myself to surround myself by quantitative people who can keep systems in play for the smallest activities we do. The whole goal is never how you do it. The goal is if it, in order for it to have long-term, voluntary, and successful change, it has to be scalable, which means someone else should be able to do it. They may not do it as well as you. They may do it worse than you, but they should be able to do it because they know what requires to be done. So sometimes in our playbook, we need to go one step further. In addition to the what needs to be done, we need to also say why it is an integral part of the process. The why builds the primary and the tertiary reasons why anything happens in an organization. Sometimes we are so fixated on how the sale should take place, we don't fixate ourselves on why it is integral that this organization does what they do and why they are a good part. So the why is a very integral part of that playbook. The second component that you had uh, talked about in the competence arena is the whole notion that we can wing it. We can just, uh, here's your uh, phone, here's your database, and go get them, Tiger. I think it was, uh, it may have been Motorola who years ago said that their cost of hiring a new employee, they put somewhere at $50,000. By the time they, the interviews, the man hours that went into the interviews, the man hours that went into getting the ad out there, and all the different people who touch a point to make a, re- make a recruitment complete, They said it it was about $50,000 when an employee finally walked into the door. So IBM and Xerox uh, had a similar number, but they had it from a different way. They said that, hey, you know what? We're going to invest $50,000 in a person before we allow them to interface with any of our clients. There's a huge benefit here if you look at the the way in which some of the monolithics operated. And what was that? They said, hey, we're looking at long-term success, not a short-term quick fix. Now, many of those people who left those organizations after having had that kind of investment in them had a stellar career anywhere else just for the reason that they carried that trademark. So one of the things I tell the clients I work with is, we had a saying at Ziegler was, the only thing worse than training your people and losing them is not training them and keeping them. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So if you train them and they leave you, they will go somewhere else and be better and you will be given the recognition for that. It's you don't lose. Your goodwill extends into an industry that you never thought because you now have a person who worked for you is now an unpaid, uncommissioned salesperson for you in another environment. 
So that paid forward idea is not a bad idea of investing in people. But again, the youngsters coming into our workforce need to want to be trained. Uh, some of them are just, they see the ad and they think that if they make the call Friday by Saturday, they can be on the trip and bail. So. Well, this raises another important question. I think a lot of salespeople are passive when it comes to their own personal development. And I'm zealous about this. I firmly believe that while it's in the company's best interest to train their people, it's also incumbent on the individual salesperson to invest in themselves. And there is not a day that goes by where they should not be investing at least an hour in their own personal development. And I struggle to understand why someone who goes into the sales profession and genuinely wants to make this their career would not personally invest in their own training and development, in study. So again, when you're involved in the recruitment process, what are you doing to help your clients recognize that and identify that particular character trait to ensure that they're getting people who have an unbridled ambition to learn. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Tom Hopkins used to say that you have to go find eagles, turkeys come to your door all day long. When people come to me looking for a job, one of my litmus tests is if they start by, I feel, I know that this person thinks that is thinking in terms of emotion. But if a person says, I think, then that's a tactician. That does not either necessarily qualify or disqualify them for a job. But for me, the litmus test is I need quantitative people who I can then add a qualitative spin to. I don't need qualitative people who I then have to force a quantitative spin on. So if you're just touchy-feely and happy and you wander in the environment, and I'm a people person and I like to belong and I like parties and all of that other stuff, and suddenly I'm asking you to crank out 50 calls a day, you're going, we're going to have a problem because you're a qualitative person where quantitative does not come naturally. But it's easy to teach the reverse. And, you know, Bob Townsend, who wrote the book Up the Down Organization, this man turned around Avis, and I think he wrote this book on a yacht in the Caribbean, so he did well. Every group he ever managed, he only asked three questions, and he gave them 24 hours to come back with the answers, but the three questions were as solid as, I mean, I've used them and given them credit, but they're so brilliant. The first question he would ask everybody is, what do you do? And this was role identity. He wanted to know what they did. Second was, what would you like to do? This was role ambition. He wanted to see where their vision was. But the third was a tiebreaker. He says, how will you know when you get there? This was role benchmark. Because everybody wants to do something greater. One of my colleagues used to say, if selling were easy, your boss would still be doing it. And every sales program I do, I always tell them that. The sales manager is just a guy who doesn't want to sell anymore, looks like. I remember I was a sales manager when I was just a number one salesperson in a district, and they made me the sales manager, the worst sales manager ever. Because I got the job because I was good at what I did, but now I was earning less because I had eight people who didn't have the drive and the desire And to satisfy my ego and not build them up, I was closing sales for them so that I could still stay the sales manager, but yet they were making more money. The happiest day of my life was when they fired me as sales manager and let me go back being a salesperson. (laughs) I'm a maverick by nature. I will figure out how to get it done because for me, feeding my family is more important than feeding my ego. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, again, I think Ryan Holiday's book, Ego is the Enemy, really sums that up beautifully. The moment you let your ego get between you and the prospect's decision to buy, 
then you're in trouble. Equally, mm -hmm. the moment you let your ego get between you and your salespeople's ability to hit their quota, dead in the water. The problem too often is that we allow attachment to get in the way, emotional attachment to being perceived in a particular way, to achieving a particular number. And we forget that the reason that we are in sales is because of the customer, not in spite of them. And I want to cycle back to something that you said a moment ago, that 60 to 70% of the buying decision has already been made online. I have a real problem with that because what that tells me is that the salespeople have not done their job well enough because they are not there at the early stage of the prospect's purchase decision in many cases. I get it. If you're working in large transactional stuff, there will be some element of the prospect going through that research process. But it strikes me that too often the salespeople are allowing themselves to passively be invited in at a late stage. So they're not controlling the sale. They're moving into the buyer's system. And to my mind, that's criminal when it comes to being a professional salesperson. All that is being just an amateur. So I'd be curious to take that conversation a little bit deeper. Yeah, in fact, the illustration we used to demonstrate this came from a colleague of mine, Janet Rush, who said, if you go to a grocery store and watch someone buy a head of lettuce, the lettuce head one goes through a considerable amount of scrutiny and then is put back. The second head of lettuce or cabbage, uh, they do some physical manifestation and put it back. The third head of produce goes into your basket without any scrutiny. I said, as a salesperson, you can go through life being the third head of lettuce. Someone will pick you. But it takes considerable genius to be one and two. Now, how do they recognize? So this is going out of your comfort zone. This is one of the things to so the sales professionals listening to this podcast, I would encourage you to do two things. You make sure that you get out there your professional acumen by writing articles or white papers and posting them on LinkedIn or any of the other business boards. Not that everybody would read. We live in an age, unfortunately, where you know, I did a webinar recently on this where I said, Everybody wants to just do that one video which will go viral. I said, if you want one video that'll go viral, wear a Chewbacca mask and laugh uncontrollably in a parking lot, and maybe that'll work. But other than that, most of us will struggle to get 150 views of anything. That's called life. But that's just like the batting order, or that's just like making sure that you play the game by getting in there and writing the white papers, you don't have to be laborious and very verbose, but maybe three paragraphs on why you think a certain skill works, put it out there. What you're doing is twofold. One is you're telling people you are, you consider yourself an expert enough to put something out there in a digital footprint. The second is it sharpens your senses because the second time you write something, you will want to be better. That's where your research comes in and you will that's where your one hour or day of preparation comes in. So first thing, get involved in writing white papers, get involved in posting stuff on forums that tether to your professional disposition as a salesperson. The second thing I'd encourage you to do on a daily basis is what Marcus alluded to earlier. Invest at least 15 to 20 minutes every day reading information about your clients, spending time in research in a myriad of industries where your product or service is supposed to be going to make a solution. The University of Southern California did a study. They called it Automobile University, passive learning. If you're in your car 12,000 miles a year and most of us qualify, they said within three years, you could get the equivalent of two years of college just listening to information. 
A podcast typically will be 30 minutes. Some go 45. I've been on engaging podcasts that will last an hour. But an hour means you can get your two ways of drive time accomplished, learning something new that day as a passive listener that will help you the next day. Engage in research and then turn around and put that research out in a public forum. And I think what will happen is your activity expertise will kind of catapult. So, Okay. A topic near and dear to both our hearts is sales ethics. And I'd like to touch on that briefly. I find that sales has the reputation, justifiably in most cases, if I'm being perfectly honest, of being populated by charlatans and snake oil peddlers. And I think that's, again, morally corrupt because I firmly believe that you should only sell something to someone if it's genuinely the right thing for them. But so often, because people don't have a strong pipeline, because they're behind on quota, because they're facing a lot of pressure from management, they're encouraged to generate transactions despite the fact that it's probably not the right thing. And so they end up trying to force or strong arm the prospect. And you know, we teach the rule, people love to buy, they hate to be sold. And I think too often, early on in people's careers, they are encouraged to go out and sell at any cost. What can be done in order to get people to behave more ethically within the profession so that sales is a force for good instead of something that people shy away from? Well, you know, I'm asked this question in both my lives, uh, in my life as a moralist philosopher who teaches ethics uh, in the third world to people where I don't charge for it. And as far as teaching ethics in corporations where I do charge for it, I always tell them the same thing that I was taught. With integrity, you have nothing to fear because you have nothing to hide. You don't get stressed because of what you've eaten. You get stressed because of what's eating you. Ultimately, our conscience is what's going to be the barometer. You cannot make a good deal with a bad person. And so if we, this is just not going to be possible. So if you discount in some way or you use strong arm tactics or you see here, technically, you know, if you're offering customer A who bought the product at its full value because he had a need for it and you were there at the very start of the cycle or it was the second of the month and you celebrated selling it to him for 100,000 pounds or something like that. And then at the End of the month on the 28th, you realized you were $28,000 short, so you took a $40,000 contract and made it $28,000, so the customer would sign on the dotted line. But you offered the same service to customer A as you will to customer B, but customer A paid three times as much. Shame on you, because the word will eventually come back. I always tell people that, you know, when they say, can you do this for less? I said, yes, but you're going to have to call my client and tell them that uh, you bargained down to a point and try to convince them that they paid more for no reason. I said, I would rather stick with the one happy sale where I gave that person it. Because at the end of the day, here's the thing. I mean, I want to be able to put my head on the pillow at night and sleep. Selling is the easiest working, most lucrative professional, the hardest working, most frustrating one. And what people confuse is the difference between refusal and rejection. When someone says N-O to me because of my price, what they're saying is I don't K-N-O-W know enough about your product, so I'm not going to buy it. That's fine. You've negated my skill and my ability to display what I thought was a valid proposition. You've given me permission to go back to the drawing board and re-engineer myself. So when you say no to me, you're saying no to my skill. I can go back and fight another day. But if you say no and I take it as rejection, then you're saying no to my will. That's personal. 
And anytime I offer something where I know in my heart that I offered the same product to this person and I offer the same product to this person, but I charge this person three times less, I'm rejecting myself in some way because that's very unethical. It's not a good business practice. Wise words. I'm curious about one thing. What are you particularly struggling with or uncertain about at the moment with respect to sales or management? Well, I'll go back to the the original number we had given about 70% of transaction finishing online. I wanted to expand on that a little bit. What I meant by online was customers are more savvy now than they have ever been. They can go online and find out more about what you can ever offer them by just doing their due diligence. By the same token, our digital modes of communication, whether it's text message, whether it's uh, sending them an email or something, a lot of our communication is taking place in the electronic world. My biggest fear that I'm struggling with now is because I'm an intent presenter. That's what I've modeled myself as. I've never been a content presenter. Whenever I stood up in front of people or when I've sat in front of a client, they looked at my facial expressions and they saw my emotion. I was able to add content because my physical presence demonstrated my intent. In a high-tech world, the high touch loses itself. And that's one of the things I struggle with because of the fact, that's why I asked you, do you want to do this audio or video? Whether you use the video or not, when I see myself on screen, I know I sound better. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm an intent guy, so that's what I'm struggling with. One of the things that struck me over the years is that the problem that the prospect brings us is almost never the real problem. They -hmm. always bring us one of two things. They bring us symptoms or they bring us nirvana, the finished outcome. They never bring us the why, the cause. And I think when organizations are doing their online research, more often than not, they're asking the wrong questions. And I I think it was Mr. Ziegler that came up with the the line, if you want better answers, ask better questions. If not, I'll attribute it to him anyway. One of the problems is that we as salespeople are not asking ourselves better questions. And that 15 minutes in the morning, that's where you should be asking those questions of yourself. What can I do to make my life or someone else's life simpler or easier? What's the real reason why someone might buy my products or my services? What is it that got them to this point that made them realize that they needed help, even though they don't understand what's causing their problem? And I think we fail to ask ourselves those questions because they're uncomfortable. And I certainly struggle with that when I'm working with clients, because often I'm worried that I maybe come across as too harsh or too direct. Though over the years, I've learned that actually being absolutely upfront and always telling the truth is important. I think Oscar Wilde said it rather well, which is always tell the truth that confounds your enemies and surprises your friends. Actually, Mm -hmm. I think that was Mark Twain. But the problem is that we don't ask ourselves tough questions. And what are the questions that you're struggling with asking yourself at the moment? When you talked about, uh, you know, one of the great British writers of all time, and one of my favorites is a gentleman by the name of Malcolm Muggeridge. And Muggeridge said, there is no new news. It's just old news happening to new people. So (laughs) (laughs) we're just struggling with the same issues we always have. In terms of the struggle within the profession of selling, I think some days I wonder why it's harder than other days because of the fact that I'm not doing it 100% of the time, some days it takes a little more discipline to get engaged because I spend half my time doing nonprofit work in Asia. So I'm only doing this for six months of the year. But when I come back after that six-month hiatus overseas, I find 
it's harder to get motivated to do it, not because I don't have the discipline, but because the surrounding cast does not exist anymore. Recently, someone mentioned to me, you know, they were watching a documentary on the life of Mr. Ziegler, and I had been interviewed on that. And the last question they asked me on the documentary was, what would you say to him if he was right here? And I broke down because he taught me so much about life and living that I miss that surrounding cast of daily motivation of ringing the bell and the rah-rah and walking into an environment, getting excited. Because he would say something, you know, he says, without good, honest, effort-making salespeople, all this world has is an excess inventory of unused and unsold ideas. (laughs) I think you've touched on a really interesting question. I have a real issue when people talk about motivation. Motivation is an internal fire. Motivation comes from within yourself. You can inspire, you can bully, brutalize, cajole, bribe, but motivation has to come from within. And I think so many people are looking for extrinsic motivation and really they're looking in the wrong place. I find a lot of people struggle with is that they spend so much of their time pointing the finger of blame and looking outside and saying the company should be doing this for me. My manager should be doing that for us. I think that's a fundamental mistake. It's part of the human condition to do that. But I think it's misguided. What do you feel? The saying was, if you let someone else row your boat, they're going to take it to where they want to go, not to where you want to go. Extrinsic motivation is good if the mentor has passed scrutiny, but extrinsic motivation is bad if it's going to be done for their good. That's manipulation. If we go back to where we started about this world, there is no fairness in the world. It was never intended to be fair. It's not fair. We hear that statement all the time. Yet I've asked this question, do you want fairness or equality? And 99% of the people say fairness. 100% of our solutions are about equal. It'll never be equal. They'll always be favorites. They'll always be smarter people. They'll always be some people for whom it comes easier. If you're selling a highly analytical product, for some people it's easier, for other people it's hard. So one of the things on intrinsic motivation that I would encourage people to do, I think we alluded to that in between. Every day do something for someone they could have done themselves. And whether it starts at home or whether it starts helping other people. So I used to invest in people on the way to work, people who would be service providers to me. I would ask them what their goals, their dreams, their hopes, their aspirations were. So when I started a Toastmasters club in a prison in Mansfield, Texas, I realized as a corporate speaker, IBM may not be ready for me, but I'm smarter than a seventh grader in prison. So I'm going to lift people up that I can impact. So on their shoulders, they'll take me to the place where I need to go. So on the way to work, I would ask the guy at the convenience store, what are your dreams? One of the guys looked at me and said, I just want to be on the day shift. And I was thinking to him, man, I consult with Fortune 500 companies. I have enough wherewithal to get you on the day shift. So I just started working with him. Every day when I'd stop for my cup of coffee, I'd give him a tidbit or a small pamphlet or a tape or a CD. And six months later, he was on the day shift. So that's my thing is if you want to be intrinsically motivated, don't start with trying to change yourself so you can become greater. Invest in someone else and bring enough people to where you are and on their shoulders, they'll take you to where you need to be. That's a lovely piece of advice. Let me ask you this question then. Who's influencing you today? What are you reading, watching, listening to that's really making an impact on your life and your business? I study more anthropology right now because I'm trying to study human behavior across civilizations and stuff like that. So I actually have a reading list that I put out, but 
one of the books I recently picked up that I haven't read in a long time was uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. These are books that are timeless uh, classics that go through time and then they revert themselves. I'm diving through Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, who was a brilliant writer. Again, that's part of the anthropology studies that I do as part of my desire to help people in the third world. John Maxwell's uh, book that I dug out because someone had asked me, I'm just going through a reread on that. And this was Developing the Leader Within You. I hadn't read it in 20 years, but I remember at that time getting both the book and the workbook format. So I'm going through the workbook format right now because it's populated with questions that I'm asking myself to change some of the habits I need to developing the leader within you. A fabulous book that is teeming with marvelous questions is The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. Another one is Mark Goulston's Just Listen and Talking to Crazy. Absolutely fabulous books. Final question then. Thank you so much for this. Uh, Final question. If you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot Chris at 23 years old, what advice would you give him to save you a lifetime of idiocy and self-sabotage? I would set bigger goals. My goals were limited back then to my ability to comprehend. My vision was just based on what I was actually based on provision. I was only dreaming that which was feasible instead of dreaming what was desirable. I would go back and change some of my goals. One of the simpler things I did in those days, which I should have done bigger, was my dad used to tell me, he said, if you have a quota of 100, make sure your personal quota is 125 and try to achieve your personal goal. And if you come up short on your personal goal, you will have always exceeded the organization goal. But I don't know why I stopped at 125. I didn't know why I couldn't have done it 200. It didn't really matter. Anything over 100 was bonus, so why don't put it at 300? So the same reason was it was based on the myopia. For me, 25% more than what I was capable of doing was a stretch, but so was 50. And this goes back to that old guy who was, you know, in East Liverpool, Ohio, an insurance salesman by the name of Ben Feldman. One day he was asked the question, how did you start selling so big? He says, I just added a zero. I was selling $5,000 policies. And one day I said, do I dare sell 50000 Then one day he started adding another do I dare sell 500000 Before he was done, he was selling $50 million whole life policies for big companies. He was an introvert by nature, but set the standard for dreaming. So if I had a golden ticket and went back in time, I would convince myself to dream bigger. By the same token, when Billy Graham was asked the question, what would you change about your life? He said nothing because I'm the sum total of what all my experience has been and I like where I am. So I do really like where I am. So maybe if I change too much, I may not have been here and uh, I would not have been in Sandler uh, and I would not be talking to you and I like talking to you. So maybe <laughs> the golden ticket is have good dreams, but maybe I had a dream then that I'd talk to Marcus quicker. <laughs> you silver tongue devil, you. Chris, we've come to the top of the hour. How can people contact you? Yeah, there are a couple of ways. I have two companies. One is Sky Life Success. That is S-K-Y-L-I-F-E, success, skylifesuccess.com. That's my training and development company here in Dallas, and we have a training center here. And the other is just Chris Dunham, my name. ChrisDunham.com is my personal uh, keynote company, so either one of them can track me. I'm prevalent on all social media with that name, so I'm pretty sure I'm the only one who has it, but I'm guessing you'll put it in your links, but Chris Dunham, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and uh, 
I tell people I'm old school enough to still read Billy Graham. I'm hip, so I'm on Instagram. <laughs> you know how to use Instagram. It's still beyond me. Yeah, it's just, uh, that's why I tell people there's no misery on Facebook, but I'm finding a little bit on Instagram. <laughs> Do you have any TikToks? I think we had approached them some time back, but uh, like all in due course, you know. Uh, <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. I'm really delighted to finally get you onto the podcast. And I can't thank you enough. Well, I look forward to it and uh, look forward to hearing the replay. And then uh, I guess I'll see you in Orlando. I very much look forward to seeing you then. And hopefully I'll be bringing my wife along to introduce to you as well. All right. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you have been inspired by today's podcast, please comment, like, and share. And if you feel that you've got something to bring to the party, with respect to channel sales, enterprise sales, direct sales, sales management, or sales recruitment, and you'd like to be a guest on the Inquisitor podcast, please direct message me or email me at mkalki at sandler.com, and happy selling. Look forward to speaking to you soon. Bye-bye.